This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 6th of August 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's show, I'll be joined by the journalist and broadcaster Nabila Ramdani to go through the day's papers. And then Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller. We learned to our initial bafflement that Trump had arranged for his late first wife, Ivana, to be the first person buried at Trump National Golf Club in Bedminster, New Jersey, in, if you will, a 19th hole. And we'll have a letter from New York from our correspondent in the city, Henry Rees Sheridan. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24 with me, Georgina Godwin. First, though, let's have a look at the headlines. Israeli aircraft struck in Gaza and Palestinian militants fired rockets at Israeli cities this morning as fighting ran into a second day, ending more than a year of relative calm along the border. This began on Friday as Israel said it had launched a special operation against the Palestinian Islamic Jihad militant group, killing one of its senior commanders in a surprise daytime airstrike on a high-rise building in Gaza City. Chinese aircraft and warships practice for an attack on Taiwan today, island officials said, in retaliation for a visit there by US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi that also saw Beijing halt dialogue with the United States in several areas. Pelosi's brief unannounced visit during the week to the self-ruled island claimed by China infuriated Beijing and has prompted unprecedented military drills that have included ballistic missiles fired over the capital, Taipei. And bells tolled in Hiroshima today as the city marked the 77th anniversary of the world's first atomic bombing, with officials, including the United Nations Secretary-General, warning of a new arms race following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Prime Minister Fumio Kishida, who's chosen Hiroshima as the site of next year's Group of Seven summit, called on the world to abandon nuclear weapons. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Now, as promised, I am joined in the studio by Nabila Ramdani, who's a journalist and broadcaster. Good morning to you, Nabila. Good morning, Georgine. Thanks for having me. I understand you've been travelling. Yes, absolutely. And more specifically to my home country uh, of France. I visit there regularly, see family, of course, but also um, for work. And uh, I have been working on some long-term projects, but also I've been researching an interesting piece. I mean, that's not specific to France, because that's a, a topic that's actually quite concerning, I think, across uh, many countries. But uh, I've been working on uh, specifically the the impact that extreme weather, and especially heat wave, has had on the healthcare system in France. Uh, I mean, we often think of France as a country with a renowned Um, gold standard national health service. It's quite um, um, known for that. But uh, what I found out is that the extreme weather has actually highlighted problems with the emergency services, um, the uh, lack of funding uh, for doctors, and also has exposed a a quite concerning healthcare uh, crisis uh, uh, in, in the country. And when I spoke to medics and even patients, you know, it was very clear that the lack of staff 
is of uh, huge uh, concern. Uh, Interestingly, I I spoke to an American journalist yesterday, interviewed her yesterday, I think it's going to go out next week, uh, and her name's uh, Linda Villarosa, and her book's called Under the Skin. It's, um, uh, I think, the subtitle's about... um, It's it's all about the intersection between health and race. Mm. And she's talking about a huge crisis in America because of... uh, that, that, that kind of happens along racial divides. And I wonder if you see any evidence of that in France. Well, I think in America, the, the, the system is uh, even more in crisis, dare I say, because, uh, as you said, there's a, a huge uh, divide, uh, I suspect, not just racial one, but more generally between rich and poor. I mean, uh, to uh, afford healthcare in America, it's a huge uh, issue. Now, in France, uh, technically, it's free. It's funded by taxpayers' money. People are prepared to pay uh, for uh, um, the money to go into the system. And it's quite a generous one, actually. Healthcare uh, currently represents more than 11% of the country's uh, GDP. And uh, the... Um and it's close to uh, 170 billion. Uh, um, you know, it's the, the government spends close to 170 billion euros in reimbursing uh, medical costs. So it's quite a generous system. But in spite of all that, and in spite of all the cash that's available, it cannot cope with spiraling demands. And generally, staff are being asked to do more for less pay. And and you can just imagine uh, the, how uh, the rates of burnout mm. uh, and how high they are. Uh, I mean, just to give you an, in, um, um, an idea, more than 120 accident and emergency services have had to shut down in recent years because of a shortage of, of personnel. And, and there I said the coronavirus pandemic didn't help because it was another uh, emergency um, uh, health uh, story that, uh, of course, caused uh, much damage. Mm. And it led to, uh, astonishingly, 15,000 staff being sacked for refusing to get vaccinated. So all of that uh, I did uh, added to the to, to the burden. Yeah, absolutely. I see that the, the, the Times in London today is reporting on the fact that the lack of beds and staff in the, in the NHS here uh, is just a huge, huge mm. crisis. Uh, and of course, as you say, all of this exacerbated by these heat waves, which of course itself comes obviously from, from climate change. And it's desperately important nations keep speaking to each other, on, particularly on climate. Uh, and of course, what's happened now with Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan is that China has halted cooperation with the US mm. over climate issues. Tell us more. That's a big story in The Guardian today. It is quite a big story and it, dare I say it's an alarming story. So China has halted cooperation with the US over critical issues such as climate change but also military uh, issues uh, because uh, China effectively sends missiles over Taiwan um, which is daunting in itself. And uh, now uh, China says it will... That's in fact... Um, uh, a retaliatory um, uh, action over uh, Nancy Pelosi's uh, visit, who's uh, of course the U.S. House uh, uh, Speaker. Now they have been infuriated by her visit because they see it as an- another example of America. Dare I say, butting its nose into a sphere of influence that they should have nothing to do with. And uh, I mean, that's the kind of real politics stories that are often ignored by the media for months and even years on end and then they burst into life and when they do uh, they're quite you know uh, terrifying because the chinese have uh, responded in a quite uh, with some i would say extreme saber rattling uh, of their own you we've seen um, them mobilizing troops 
and warships, as well as showing off the nuclear arsenal. And they've even uh, fired ballistic missiles over the island of Taiwan for the first time. So it is quite a stark reminder, actually, of the build-up um, to the full-blown Russian invasion yeah. of the Ukraine. And it just shows how things can escalate very quickly indeed. Absolutely. Well, let's find out uh, what else has happened over the last week with uh, Andrew Muller. We learned this week that it always pays to read things through carefully. We are indebted for this lesson to Southend United Football Club, who, after successive relegations within the last few seasons, saw them dumped out of the Football League, probably assumed that at least 2022 could burden them with no greater humiliation. The Shrimpers, as they are known, were, we learned, wrong. We learned that Southend United, despite their recent and prolific on-pitch mishaps, had nevertheless somehow persuaded a local business to part with much-needed sponsorship cash in return for naming rights to the West Stand at Southend's generally under-occupied home ground, Roots Hall. Are you with me so far? Yeah. Excellent. The awkwardness arose because, we learned, the enterprise concerned was Leon C estate agent Gilbert and Rose, which meant that the side of Southend's pitch nearest the sunset, as advertised on the club's website and season tickets, would now be graced by the Gilbert and Rose West stand. Repeat with different emphasis, Gilbert and Rose West stand, thereby summoning one of the United Kingdom's most infamous serial killers. Oh no. Well, quite. A statement from Southend subsequently clarified that the club was now considering a different arrangement of words, as well they might. We cannot confirm as we go to air where this might leave any pending plans that may have existed to rename Roots Hall as Myra Hindley, Yorkshire Ripper, Cray Twins, Lord Lucan Stadium. We learned when we checked that Southend begin the new season's campaign this very weekend at home to Boreham Wood. And we now plan to absolutely revel in this opportunity to wheel out the ancient joke about calling to find out what time kickoff was and receiving the reply, it depends, what time can you get here? Anyway. We learned, or rather were reminded, that there are occasions on which the perpetual amoral grift waged by former US President Donald Trump occasionally approaches something like art. We learned, to our initial bafflement, that Trump had arranged for his late first wife, Ivana, to be the first person buried at Trump National Golf Club in Bedminster, New Jersey, in, if you will, a 19th hole. <laughs> Come on, it was right there. Also, I know we've got a golf noise clip. We used it the other week. There it is. But we learned further to that that New Jersey law offers considerable write-offs to cemetery land, exempting it from sales, business, income, inheritance and other taxes. A couple of interesting questions therefore arise. 
Is it possible that we are rushing to judge all concerned far too harshly and that there actually is a more wholesome and pure-hearted explanation for this apparently unorthodox choice of location of Ivana Trump's final repose? Yes. However, is it altogether more gratifying to just go ahead and assume that Donald Trump picked it for tax reasons? Also, yes. Happy as ever to help, and by way of making sense of the soundtrack we have chosen for this bit, if Trump is planning to make a serious go of the combined golf course cemetery setup, he can have as our gift the name <laughs> Fairway to Heaven. Sticking with the subject of portly bloviators who have long grifted a living by pandering to the seething paranoid fantasies of hard-of-thinking Americans... We learned from the ongoing legal travails of foil-hatted fulminator Alex Jones that sometimes bad things do happen to bad people. Mr Jones, for the benefit of listeners who wisely tuned his conspirazoid news agency Infowars out some years back, is currently being sued in an Austin court for defamation by the parents of one of the 20 children killed in 2012's massacre at Sandy Hook Elementary School, a crime which Jones has repeatedly told his large audience of credulous yokels was a hoax. We also learned from the following glorious revelation from the parents' lawyer that Jones' attorneys may not be the finest legal minds currently at large on the North American continent. Mr. Jones, did you know that 12 days ago, 12 days ago, your attorneys messed up and sent me an entire digital copy of your entire cell phone with every text message you've sent for the past two years, and when informed, did not take any steps to identify it as privileged or protected in any way. And as of two days ago, it fell free and clear into my possession. And that is how I know you lied to me when you said you didn't have text messages about Sandy Hook. Did you know that? We also learned that the presiding judge, Maya Guerra Gamble, may not have been one of Infowars' most devoted listeners. It seems absurd to instruct you again that you must tell the truth while you testify, yet here I am. You must tell the truth while you testify. This is not your show. Do you understand what I have said? Yes, I believe what I said was true, so I don't... Yes, you believe everything you say is true, but it isn't. Your beliefs do not make something true. That is, that is what we're doing here. Just because you claim to think something is true does not make it true. And we also learned that still further hilarity may be tapped from this likely rich seam. We learned that among those now taking a close interest in the contents of Alex Jones' phone are the US Congressional Committee investigating the attempted putsch of January 6th, 2020, which Jones, a friend of and cheerleader for Donald Trump, did a great deal to crank up. A sound effect of popcorn popping would seem, at this time, appropriate. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. 
Thank you very much to Andrew. This is Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin and still with me uh, is the journalist and broadcaster Nabila uh, Ramdani. Nabila, he's talking there, of course, about mm. Alex Jones and that um, story has been picked up worldwide, front page of many, many papers, including the New York Times. Mm. And of course, since Andrew recorded that, the jury's ordered Jones to pay $45.2 million in the Sandy Hook case. And uh, I thought it was really interesting listening to the judge because th- this is what we've come down to, haven't we, in, in what some people call the post-truth society. But just because you believe something to be true does not make it true. Yes, and there I say it's a very important ruling because it's the first time, effectively, that Alex Jones has been held um, financially liable for the lies he peddles. As uh, Andrew said in his uh, report, you know, he claimed that the Handy, uh, Sandy Hook um, elementary school massacre was a hoax and he claimed that it was a faked um, by the government to tighten gun laws. It was basically used as an excuse to um, uh, deal with the uh, gun legislation in the US. And one shouldn't underestimate how, you know, distasteful, to say the very, very least, uh, this this story is all about. Because, you know, um, if we go back to December 2012, it started off as a normal morning in a new home in Connecticut. And then a um, 20-year-old kills his mother, picks up the guns, drives to the nearby local school and guns down 20 children and six adults. And it's the terrifying routine reality of America. Yeah. How many Sandy Hook massacres has there been ever since? You know, it's, it's absolutely... And, and, and to me, it says so much about how uncivilised America actually is. Um, that's, you know, how unsafe people can feel and actually are. And it's a, it's a devastating uh, indictment of, of, uh, of the country. It has a lot going for it, but that shows that, uh, that it's a, also a sign of a, a deep crisis uh, within American society. And there I say, they export, uh, America exports that gun culture around the world, not least of all through Hollywood. Uh, um, you know, and we see uh, a, a terrifying, um, you know, projection of that is when we have terrorist attacks uh, in Europe and around the world. Uh, they all uh, seem to be perpetrated by drugged up young uh, men who have been playing violent video games and watching, binging on Hollywood violent movies. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so that's a, a terrifying, you know, um, situation. But, you know, we're talking about truth and fake news. And, 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 and in that respect, if we put that in that context, that's also a hugely important uh, verdict because, you know, uh, you can't deny reality. And there's a lot of discussions about uh, being controversial. Where do you draw the line when you want to be offensive or you want to be, you know... Um, uh, to push, you know, things a, a bit. I mean, uh, but I think there's a, a line to be drawn about, you know, where, you know, um, being controversial stops and when being actually a negationist uh, yeah. begins. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Uh, let's let's uh, stay with America, actually, and we'll get our latest letter from New York City. Uh, this week, Henry Reese Sheridan takes another look at the redrawing of New York's congressional map ahead of the midterm elections. Many people, at some point in their lives, move somewhere for the sake of work. Maybe it's just to look for a job. Maybe your employer 
has asked you to move somewhere, to take on a different role. Or maybe you've got an offer from a new company that requires you to up sticks. Whatever the specific reason moving for work is, like most things in life, a combination of good and bad, light and shade, annoying and not annoying. Having to say goodbye to friends and family, annoying. The sense of spiritual renewal that normally accompanies a move to even the boringest place, not annoying. Arranging for your sofa to be sawn in half so it can fit through the doorways and down the stairs of your apartment building, then be transported to your new apartment and fused back together on site, a service people actually pay for in New York City. Annoying. Recycling all your old trainers. Not annoying. Very satisfying. The point is, like everything in life, relocating is a mixed bag. But what if you had to relocate and it was just the annoying bits? This is the prospect that some lawmakers in New York City are facing. The upcoming midterm elections will be fought on a political map that's been redrawn this year as part of the most recent redistricting cycle. And as I've previously covered, the process has been controversial. Basically, the Democrats proposed a new electoral map, as is their right as the party in power in the state. But it was judged that these maps gave Democrats an unfair advantage, so a new one had to be drawn up by a court-appointed redistricting expert. One of the many disruptive consequences of this is that some lawmakers have had their own homes drawn out of the districts they are running to represent. That's OK while the race is on, but if they win, they're going to have to move into new homes to make sure they live in the districts they represent. Imagine, exactly the same job, exactly the same city, but you still have to pay for your sofa to be sawn in half like some kind of upholstered magician's assistant and moved, at most, a few miles away. One lawmaker, Joseph Adabo, Jr., has said he might have to move back in with his mum if he wins his election. Even though the New York Democrats' map was thrown out, the truth is that they were only doing what every party in every state in the US does when it finds itself in power during a redistricting cycle, which is to try to redraw the political map to give their party as much of an advantage as possible. This is called gerrymandering. In New York, the Democrats were held accountable for it. This isn't always the case. In Ohio, Republicans are maneuvering to fight the upcoming midterms on maps they've drawn up despite them having been thrown out by the state Supreme Court multiple times. Endemic gerrymandering is often pointed to as yet another symptom of a broken American political system. But the truth is that gerrymandering happens all over the world. And while there are examples of gerrymandered maps that make no sense other than giving a particular party an advantage, there's no ideal way to draw up an election map. All political boundaries are to the advantage of some people and at the expense of others. That's what politics is about. Some boundaries seem neutral at first glance. 
For example, historical boundaries between wards or counties dating back hundreds of years. But sticking to these risks ignoring important demographic shifts as the population of areas fluctuates in size and composition. Even the criteria for drawing up electoral districts that seem obviously illegitimate can be used in a way that some people think is valuable. One of the most harmful forms of gerrymandering is when electoral lines are drawn to exclude particular ethnic and racial groups. Examples of gerrymandering being used in this way is all too common in the US. But sometimes, representatives of ethnic minority groups actually want to be gerrymandered. For example, the most recent New York map that was thrown out included an extremely weirdly shaped 10th congressional district. It snaked all the way down the west side of Manhattan, then back up and around on itself into Bed-Stuy and Crown Heights, before coming south again into Boreham Hill and Carroll Gardens in South Brooklyn. The map made little geographic sense, but one of the aims of this weird district was to unite New York's diverse and geographically dispersed Jewish communities. Jerry Nadler, the 10th district's current representative, is the last remaining Jewish House member from New York. Some Jewish leaders have advocated for the ethnically gerrymandered district to be preserved to unite the city's Jewish voters and ensure that New York, which has a larger Jewish population than any other city on earth, retains a Jewish representative. So gerrymandering and redistricting is more complicated than it seems. When it's egregious, it should be called out. But just like moving home, drawing up political districts is doomed to be a chronically ambiguous combination of good and bad, light and shade, annoying and not annoying. Thank you very much to Henry Reece Sheridan in New York. Uh, and still with me in the studio is Nabila. Nabila, we've been uh, flicking through the papers here. Really interesting uh, piece on cyclists uh, who uh, are finally to face the same penalties as drivers when they uh, commit a, a traffic offence. Yes, on the face of it, it's a contentious story. But I have to say, I fully agree with the, uh, the uh, Transport Secretary's uh, proposal. Grant Chaps is effectively, uh, he wants tougher jail sentences for um, cyclists who uh, cause uh, uh, danger, I mean, who are responsible for dangerous cycling up to the point of um, killing people. He effectively wants to close a, a loophole, meaning that riders who kill pedestrians at the moment, they can only be jailed for, for two years and he wants to uh, criminalise it in the same way as uh, uh, dangerous uh, car driving, for example. And this was all prompted by uh, a campaign, really, which started when um, a, um, a mother, um, Kim Briggs, who was killed when she crossed a road in East London um, in 2016, and she was hit by an 18-year-old who was riding um, a, a, an, an illegal uh, fixed-wheel bike with no front brake brakes at uh, uh, 18 miles per hour. And he was only jailed for 18 months because there was no uh, legislation that um, existed to charge him with the equivalent of causing death by dangerous driving. So prosecutors had to rely literally on a Victorian legislation the Offences Against the Person Act of 1861, which was originally designed to cover offences with horse-drawn carriages uh, to secure a conviction uh, in, in this case. So uh, what 
Mr. Chaps is, uh, wants to do is to get rid of that archaic legislation and um, make sure that cyclists are also uh, prosecuted in the same way as motorists. Yeah. And I think this might extend to uh, e-scooters, for example, who, uh, which are hugely powerful machines. I mean, they're uh, <laughs> electricity-powered and they're causing a lot of, uh, of damage. And I think it's about, it was about time that such legislation was brought about. Um, there's also uh, concerns about the double standards. For example, there are no speed limits established for people driving a bike or indeed an e-scooter. And they, they are no, there's no drink driving legislation that applies to those um, vehicles as well. I think it's an important development. And it was about time it was brought about, uh, frankly. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Nabila, we've just got a couple of minutes before we have mm. to go, so I have a very important question for you. <laughs> did, you <laughs> did you ever have a Barbie doll? I did, actually, but I also had a Cindy doll, which was... Oh, the I great think, rival. The great it? rival. Yeah. Yeah. Not as busty as Barbie. Precisely. As, as, I think, as I I'm, I'm not quite sure what the difference was, actually. Was uh, Barbie supposed to be more dolled up than yeah, Cindy? Was Cindy more so. practical and more... You know, um, well, I, I ask you this because the Independent has a big piece today on the rise of Barbie core, uh, and uh, apparently this is a, it, it's not just fashion that, that's doing it, uh, but it's it's all about pink and in fact one particular shade of pink, uh, they, they they call it uh, saturated magenta tone, uh, and it's 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 a. Um, a, a company calls their, their their tone orchid flower, and that's how they describe it. Uh, and you're seeing this hot pink everywhere, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but actually, the, the piece is really interesting because it then, of course, goes back into Barbie's 1950s heritage uh, and the fact that fashion is quite obsessed with nostalgia and, and things do have a, a cyclical nature. Well, it is, and you only have to browse through Instagram nowadays to see that everything is pretty much pink. And even uh, cafes and restaurants uh, are now labelled as Instagrammable because of their pink setting. Yeah. And it's very popular for uh, young women in particular and teenage girls to go and, and stand there and do fashion shoots and just post on their social media accounts. Um, and, and I think it all goes back to that Barbie nostalgia, frankly. Yeah, although, of course, Barbie herself, as the article points out, has undergone a sort of feminist and more inclusive makeover. It's no longer just the, the blonde, busty Barbie. There's every kind of Barbie imaginable, isn't there? Yeah, it, it, it's still a Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, let me just tell you that this year, uh, the Danish group Aqua uh, celebrates 25 years uh, of their hit single, Barbie Girl. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was quite... Yeah, it was quite something. Yeah. It really was. Mm -hmm. I thought it was... Um, so that they're, in fact, going to re-release the album on September the 9th. And I, for one, cannot wait. <laughs> <laughs> Navila, thank you very much indeed. Uh, thanks also to our studio engineer, Nora Hull. I'm Georgina Godwin, and Monocle on Saturday will return at the same time next week. Thanks for listening.